the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, the crack of shields shattering, the smack of werewolves munching on leprechauns, and the silence of satellites circling in orbital vigil, and part 34 of our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Editor Tony Daniel. Bain Free Radio Hour guest host David F. Sherarad returns this time with an interview of the editors of the new Shattered Shields Military Fantasy Anthology. These are Jennifer Brozick and Brian Thomas Schmidt. Also along is Bain author Gray Reinhardt. They will all discuss what makes this cool anthology unique and entertaining. I want to remind everyone that our original audio drama, Islands, serialized here on the Bain Free Radio Hour, is available at bainebooks.com. Film quality soundtrack, original music, and a cast of fine actors brings the adaptation of Eric Flint's novella, Islands, to life. Get it at bainebooks.com. We're also hard at work on the next audio drama, and that will be coming up soon. It's a Korea piece, so keep your ears peeled and your bananas ripe, but not rotten. And we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, as read by Bronson Pinchot. But first, here's the news. The new Bain.com fiction and nonfiction for November is now online for your reading pleasure. We have Bait and Switch, a neat story set in the world of Reiki Spore's Paradigms Lost, which is a book that will be out in December. This one has a contemporary fantasy world where werewolves and high-tech countermeasures collide. It's a cool milieu. Rick has a pretty neat take on the traditional vampire and werewolf origins also that makes them both more terrifying and more plausible. And Debate and Switch is a mystery story that brings in some of that lore. Also up is another piece by NASA scientist and Bain author Les Johnson. And using outer space to improve life on Earth, Les rejects the doomsayers when it comes to space exploration and space exploitation. His argument is that if you want to see improvement of life on Earth, the best way to get it is development of space and space travel. It's a thoughtful piece and a great rebuttal to those who argue that we should stop space exploration until all of the Earth's problems are dealt with. Bait-and-Switch and Using Space to Improve Life on Earth are both available now for your reading pleasure at Bain.com. Check them out. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. I'm David F. Shirod, and I'm pleased to be talking about Shattered Shields, an anthology of all-new military fantasy stories out now from Bain. Here to discuss the book are its editors Jennifer Brozek and Brian Thomas Schmidt. Jennifer is an award-winning writer and editor. She's edited 14 anthologies and written 60 short stories, as well as the novels in A Gilded Light, The Lady of Seeking in the City of Waiting, Industry Chalk, and The Karen Wilson Chronicles. She's also a freelance author for numerous role-playing game companies and the creative director 
of Apocalypse Inc. Productions. Jennifer, thanks for being here. Hello, thank you for having me. We also have Brian Thomas Schmidt here. He's the author and editor of Adult and Children's Speculative Fiction. His debut novel, The Worker Prince, received an honorable mention on Barnes & Noble Book Club's Year's Best Science Fiction Releases for 2011. He edited the anthology Space Battles, Full Throttle Space Tales Number 6, Beyond the Sun, Ray Gun Chronicles, Space Opera for a New Age, and, of course, Shattered Shields. Uh, he also, one of his... Children's science fiction books is Abraham Lincoln Dinosaur Hunter, which I don't know about you, but to me sounds a lot more interesting than that movie that came out a couple years ago. Uh, Brian, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be with you. And also joining the conversation is Gray Reinhardt. He's a contributor to Shattered Shields. Uh, he may be the only person to have commanded an Air Force unit written for presidential appointees and had his music featured on the Dr. Demento show. He's a contributing editor at Bain. He's a uh, Bain Slushmaster General, which means if you want to get a novel published with Bain, you're going to have to go through him. Uh, his short stories have appeared in Asimov's, Orson Scott Card's Intergalactic Medicine Show, and Analog, along with other fine purveyors of science fiction tales. Uh, he's also quite the filker. He's got a CD out, Truth, Lies, and Make-Believe. Uh, two songs from that, Another Romulan Ale and Tauntaun's Glory, were the songs that he had featured on uh, the Dr. Demento Show. Gray, thanks so much for talking to us. And thanks for letting me talk. <laughs> you know, since, since he's the slushmaster and we have to go through him, we should all say, what a genius he is. He's just a brilliant guy. And, you know, and just impeccable taste as well. Yeah, as if I don't get enough flattery from would-be writers. I don't need it from you guys who are already accomplished and know what you're doing. <laughs> well, better safe than sorry. <laughs> all right, so... Um... Jennifer and Brian, I wanted to start with you guys. Uh, we've all heard of military science fiction. Uh, it's sort of a subgenre unto its own. But Shattered Shields is not military science fiction. It is military fantasy, which, you know, is not really a subgenre we hear much about. I'm not even sure it's one that's really well defined, at least not in this point in time. So, um, Jennifer, Brian, what in your minds is military fantasy? How does it differ from other types of fantasy that you know often include things like epic battles and warriors, what is it that distinguishes military fantasy uh, in and of itself? So, for for me, uh, a good military fantasy story is one that actually follows uh, a couple of characters. Uh, traditionally, in in high fantasy, there are these epic battles, but you're usually at the fifty thousand foot mark with a king or a prince or uh, someone who is basically moving armies around the board like a chessboard. Whereas I, I've been military family, former military, um, I wanted fantasy stories where the characters matter and they are a small part of a big battle and you focus in on war. And the biggest part of that is it's not a black and white. When you're down on the ground in the trenches, everything's in shades of gray. And that's what Brian and I talked about for Shattered Shields. And that's what I like in, in my uh, traditional fantasy military stories, the individual stories of individual people. The military fantasy, uh, just generally speaking, is you know it's, it's it's like other fantasy stories with the exception that it has a more organized, formal military aspect, and that's more of the focus. 
than it might be in other stories. Uh, I mean, in, in the case, you'll see things like there'll be a real, real clear sense of rank and hierarchy, uh, military structure, some of the activities of a military will be a little bit more clearly defined and, and well uh, put forward. There'll be more elements of strategy involved, those kinds of things. Typically, in a military fantasy, then you might see in another story that happens to feature some war and battle scenes that's fantasy. That's how I would define it. And I everything that Jennifer said is absolutely true as well. I mean, we, we really, I think, you know, uh, we really sought out not to necessarily glorify war, but to examine it from a, different, a bunch of different angles, and that includes diverse point of view characters as well as good and bad and, and various experiences, but seen from a personal level of the actual people involved. Yeah, so it sounds like, um, obviously, um, military organization is a big part of this. It's it's not a ill-defined um, massive army. It's uh, something that's got more of a uh, sort of rank feel to it. But then also one thing that interested me that you said is that it's, it's a much more personal type of story. It's not, as Jennifer said, a 50,000 foot viewpoint. Um, and along with that is, is what you mentioned as well is as a whole, this, this offers a much more nuanced view of these military aspects of fantasy worlds. They're a little more complicated than what I think of when we think of, kind of traditional fantasy stories where there's an obvious evil side and an obvious good side, I, you know, Lord of the Rings being sort of the thing that always comes to mind. You know, there's, there's no doubt, there's no moral ambiguity or not much of it uh, in those kind of traditional high fantasies. And these stories, um, yeah, they don't necessarily take that tack. They're, they're a little bit more nuanced, a little bit more subtle. Through it all, there is, a definite, as Brian said, a military rank structure that's obeyed. One of the worst things that, I mean, it drives me absolutely bananas, is the military man, in, in a fiction story, the military uh, man or woman who, who bucks the system, breaks the rules, causes a lot of collateral damage, and then doesn't pay the price for what they did, because that doesn't happen. When you're in the military, you you are you are broken down and then built back up in a team uh, team mindset. You don't succeed if your team doesn't succeed. And most of the stories that I have seen before when it comes to military is it's all an individual. But these stories about individuals having this, the group succeed, does that make sense? I think that makes perfect sense. And I think a lot of that comes from the fascination that a lot of authors and a, a lot of readers have for the hero's journey where you know we're going to follow this one character and and this one character has to be the person who is the critical one for the entire uh the, the entire arc of the story uh whereas people who are very familiar with life in a military know that there are very, very few people who um, are so key and so critical that they can't uh, use help from time to time and that they're not part of a unit. Yeah, you know, I think the other thing about it is when we talk about world building in fantasy, we always talk about magic and how, how magic has to have a uh, consequence when you use it. You know, you can't use it. You can't just use it without there being a cost. 
But yet a lot of times these war heroes we see don't seem to have that cost. So it's good to examine it with that context and have that the hero does pay a, a price and that there are consequences to be dealt with, good and bad, in, in being the hero or being the soldier. There are heroic things that happen. I mean, there are heroic actions that take place within the context of larger battles, within the context of larger actions. And, exactly. and that's one of the things that I appreciated about you guys putting out the call for this was it allowed folks to focus on those smaller heroic acts rather than the the broad scope of the thing. Well, it sounds like, Jennifer and Brian, you guys had a pretty clear idea of what kind of stories you were looking for. Um, I just wonder if you could walk us through how the genesis of this anthology, how it came about. Um, well, I, I had the idea for Military Fantasy Anthology because I was seeing, you know, series like Mazatlan by Erickson and then, of course, Glenn Cook's Black Company, the Paxinarians of Elizabeth Moon, and also uh, Mike Cole's Shadow Object is getting a lot of news. And uh, as I looked at some uh, various theories, I realized that there wasn't a real clear-defined subgenre of military fantasy. But military sci-fi was taken off and being so popular, I thought there's got to be people who would be interested in exploring the fantasy aspect of it. So I thought this is the perfect opportunity to do something that's not being done a lot. And uh, Jennifer and I had uh, been friends and met, and I talked about working together. And I knew she was uh, from a military family background, and I also knew that she likes a little darker stories than I tend to. And I thought it would be a good combination for the two of us to work together, so I asked her to come in. She came up with the Shattered Shields uh, title idea, and we kind of went from there. Jennifer, anything to add to that? Or um, what was it like from when you, from your perspective? I I think Brian did the right thing at the right time because – he came to me and said, hey, I'd like you to do this with me. And I, you know, I considered it. I thought about my background. Uh, he's a little bit more conservative than I am. I'm a little bit more liberal. Um, and I said, okay, well, if you can sell it to one of the big five, I'll do it. And a week later on my birthday, he says, okay, I sold the anthology. So <laughs> this is now, now let's, let's get to work. And it, it was, it was really nice to see. The other thing that was really nice to see with, with, Brian was, we both set out to make certain that we had a, a broad diversity of stories. Seven of, the seven, uh, seven of the 17 stories are written by women. There's a huge variety of, of personalities and races and sexes in the anthology. And we both wanted these stories. I mean, I don't think we we didn't argue about any story except the very last, like the last story we finally decided we couldn't get it in because we didn't have the word count. I mean, that was the right, biggest you know, argument we had. Right, but it wasn't even an Go argument. Ahead. It was kind of like, I liked, I liked it a little better than she did, but we were like, look, we don't have the budget, we don't have the word count, it can't go in. So it was. she was like, go ahead, put it in, and then we realized, no, we can't. So it really, it really wasn't even a contentious thing. It was kind of like, yeah, this is where we are. Coming together with uh, with Brian, uh, with my military background and his point of view, I think gave us exactly the right mix that we needed to to appeal to a very broad art, uh, audience. Yeah, we, cer we certainly hope so. Um, 
And as we were talking about before we started recording this, it's doing pretty well. So I think you guys have hit on something. Um, you were right to think that this was something that people might be uh, interested in. Uh, I was want to talk about one of those stories that you agreed on, which is um, the one written by Mr. Gray Reinhardt, Lightweaver in Shadow. Um, Gray, how did you come to be a part of this uh, thing? How did you um, j- jump on the Shattered Shields bandwagon, as it were? Well, thankfully, I was invited to submit. Uh, Brian sent me an email and said, hey, we're doing this uh, anthology, and would you like to submit a story, and here, is the, here are the guidelines. And, and I said, I would love to do a story, and then I hemmed and hawed and procrastinated, as is my nature, and I seem to remember getting at least one and possibly more than one little you know, reminder emails, hey, we are doing this anthology, you said you were going to do a story, uh, and then finally I think I turned my story in one or two days before the final deadline. So I apologize to Brian and Jennifer for uh, uh, making their lives difficult in that respect, um, but I appreciate being given the opportunity. I actually think, great yeah. you emailed me once and said that you didn't have an idea. I think you told me once, I don't think I'm going to have anything. I can't come up with anything. And then I was surprised when you sent me a story, which was great, because then we liked the story. So, I mean, it worked out. That may that may be true, Brian. And, uh, in fact, it may be one of these cases where I had about given up and then, you know, a couple of days later said, well, I'll give it a shot anyway. Well, we're glad you did. Um, what they Correct me if I'm wrong, Gray, I, but I kind of think of you as a pretty hard science fiction writer um is this the first fantasy piece you've written or i mean what was it like writing a fantasy story i mean am i right to say that you you typically write uh in a different genre than this yeah you are right and this was a hard hard story for me to write because of that um i i've only ever published one or two small uh fantasy stories, or maybe I should even call one of them fantasy-ish, because even in that one, I tried to make sure that there was some actual physical chemistry behind the magical fire that was being used, because I just have difficulty sometimes putting my head into a fantasy world. I, I seem to operate better in the in the science fiction world, uh, but that was part of the reason why I wanted to do this was to 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 try to grow myself a little bit in a, in a new direction and see if I could. So again, I, I very much appreciate being given the opportunity, given a reason to try something new. Well, you rose to the occasion well and earned it. So I mean, you know, thank you. Well, Gray, one thing I liked about the story um, is this claustrophobic mood you created. There's this kind of fog shrouding everything, and um, it just really painted a put me in that world, painted a picture for me. And um, in the story, the main character is a light weaver, uh, which, if I'm getting this right, he can manipulate light, you know, through this some form of magic. And in the story, the fog is controlled by the enemy, basically. And I thought that was an interesting idea, this using fog, you know, as a sort of way to gain military advantage. And I just wonder if there's 
perhaps maybe an interesting origin story how you came up with that. Well, I hate to disappoint you, David. There's probably no interesting origin story for anything <laughs> I've ever written. Um, in this case, the, the 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 one thing I wanted to do was to focus on a character who had been given a role that he really didn't want because he was good at something, but it wasn't the thing that he wanted to do. But then he finds out that the thing that he wants to do is is difficult and and dangerous and maybe he's better off uh, you know doing this thing that he's good at but i i also wanted to focus on some small part of the military that i know more about than anything else and that's the the command and control function but not from the perspective of the commander from the perspective of the people who who have to send the messages um and for instance in in the early days of warfare to send a message back and forth uh, would often involve someone actually physically running with the message to deliver it. Um, and and I didn't necessarily want my character to do that, so I, I thought of this means of manipulating light as sort of a, a, a medieval, if you will, application of uh, signal lamps that uh, that are used to signal across large distances, but that uh, it requires this magical touch in order to be able to do it. And then thinking about uh, the manipulation of light led me to the idea that maybe there's also a way to manipulate shadows, and and that led me to the possibility of manipulating the fog and doing some, doing those kinds of things. Excellent. I, w- I wanted to talk briefly um, about just going back to kind of the the anthology as a whole and the genre as a whole. Maybe if there's an influence of um, gaming in this anthology. Jennifer, I know you've written, as we say, said in your introduction, for several role-playing games. And um, military fantasy, I think where you maybe see that the most right now anyways, is in uh, role-playing games. And I was just wondering if that was... Uh, you know, a particular influence on this? Well, of course, everything I I do influences everything else. I, I actually did write um, a young adult battle tech novel that's out called The Analysis Academy Incident. And that was me wanting to explain to the world that the military isn't just the fighter. About 90% of of the military is is support and acquisitions and dependence and uh, so I focused on cadets before they became these old grizzled warriors that you usually read about and the PR missions that are so much part of military cult- culture where you want to keep the morale up and you know it's a PR mission gone horribly, hor- horribly wrong, but it was all informed by the Battletech RPG universe and also the fact that that's what I grew up with. Uh, when it comes to with military and gaming, you can find it a, a military aspect in almost every single RPG out there, from Call of Cthulhu's Delta Green to the various uh, military organizations in Shadowrun to 
actually playing a soldier or a former soldier in White Wolf, uh, Vampire, Werewolf, uh, you know, any of those number of games. Right down to Dungeons and Dragons, Pathfinder, you play a different, you, you play uh, a paladin or uh, even a barbarian. And those rules are usually written by people who hopefully have some military experience. You can kind of tell if they don't. It, they've only seen it on movies. Uh, I think a lot of our writers, you know, are somewhat influenced by gaming. James L. Sutter is the fiction editor for Paizo, and he wrote Bonded Men. So it's, it's you know, Cat Rambo is a gamer. Uh, Shonda McGuire is a gamer. Uh, you know, I don't know if the Larry and, and uh, oh, Dave and them are also gamer. But yeah, Larry's a gamer. <laughs> gaming actually helps you think about what what the consequences of having or not having certain equipment will do, and that that helps writers write. It's uh, I always talk about gaming as a, a practical uh, or impractical problem solving, and then that's you know it's fantasy. And most of most of a game is you are put somewhere with limited uh, supplies, and you have to achieve a goal for hopefully a, re- a great reward, or you will die like a punk. Yeah, so that's pretty um, basic storytelling, right? I mean, in in a good way. I mean, basic, not as in simple. I mean, as in foundational storytelling. All right. Well, uh, I guess I will just uh, maybe close uh, here. Um, by asking everyone if we could just to sort of uh, maybe go around and uh, talk about maybe your favorite, what could be considered military fantasy, whether it's a book or a game or a movie, uh, maybe a short story from Shattered Shields. I don't know. Uh, something that um, has really stood stood out to you as sort of a great exemplar of the genre. Well, um, I'm going to recommend for military fantasy fans a dog anthology that was out a few years ago, edited by one of our authors, John Helfers, and uh, fantasy uh, military fantasy author John Marco. It's called Army of the Fantastic, and it has a great collection of stories. In particular, I really like uh, a story called I will I don't know how to pronounce it, but I'm going to try Saki Draki by um, Gene Rabe that is about uh, basically dragons in, in one of the world wars. Yeah. And it's really a, a, a really solid story. And then when it comes to our book, boy, you know, picking a favorite story is tough. Um, but I will say that uh, there's not a story in this anthology that we don't like. I mean, there was not, it was never a case of uh, having to pick a story because it was a certain author or a certain thing or needing to fill a space. Uh, I think you're going to find a lot of variety and a lot of really great, interesting stories with a lot of diverse points of view, and and, uh, and, and you won't be bored. Jennifer, how about you? What's a favorite um, military fantasy? The one that I've read the most recently uh, that I, I that has stuck with me is John Scalzi's uh, Old Man's War and Ghost Brigade. Those two books uh, follow a character, basic, a, a 75-year-old man, who, on his 75th birthday, visited his wife's grave and joined the military. And he actually, you get to see what it's like to go through a, 
uh, boot camp and then rise through the ranks and then get thrown into the deep end. Um, I'm, I really appreciated those two books uh, for, for not sugarcoating uh, the character's skills, uh, making them too, too good versus uh, what he was built into. Uh, and in Shattered Shields, I think my favorite thought, well, there's, there's two. I'm a really big Shauna McGuire fan of her October Day series. And the thing I will say about Shauna's story called The Fixed Stars, science, uh, war is science, and Antigone was a scientist. And that was, her big thing was uh, making a sacrifice that was needed for the greater good. And then Elizabeth Moon's story, First Blood, the thing that I was so impressed with was towards the end of the story when all hell has broken loose, people have been betrayed, they've been ambushed, and they managed to round up the, the youngest, most inexperienced person there is a lord or a lord's son. And they all fall back on the military structure and look to him, who has had some training. And like, you are the officer. You are the one who helped us. What do we do now? And they're, they're all there supporting him. But they're going to let one person who has had training, even though it's not enough, do the leading. They fell back on the military rank structure. And I, I, I know Elizabeth Moon is former military. and. Or maybe that's Elizabeth there. I don't know. I was just very impressed with this last story, the final story, no, First Blood. Elizabeth, Elizabeth Moon was in the military. She definitely was. Uh, yeah. Okay. I mean, because she felt, was a I Marine, mean, I read this. actually. That, that explains that because it's also why I, I hate it when you have the iconoclast runs off and does his own thing. I'm like, no, you have not been through the training. You don't understand. So, yeah, so those are the two stories I'm – I really think our standouts and talking about sacrifice and falling, falling back on military uh, structure. Greg, what about you? Obviously um, there's at least one story in the book that you probably like quite a bit. Well, what, what about you though? Uh, maybe in other media, as far as I know you're a science fiction guy, but is there a fantasy um, novel or movie that really stands out to you as, as um, something people should check out maybe? Well, one of the things that, I was so pleased about being in this anthology was that the, some of the people I'm in it with. Uh, it's always a thrill for me, whether I'm in a, I have a story in a magazine or in an anthology, to look at the table of contents and to be in there with people whose work I respect. Um, Jennifer was just talking about Elizabeth Moon's story, and it is a fantastic story. I enjoyed it very, very much. I, I, I felt myself in the place of the Lord, or, or he's actually acting as a squire in the story. Yeah. Uh, because she was able to, to so masterfully to, to, capture that and what that experience would have been like and the deceit and the treachery that he has to deal with. But for me, the biggest thrill um, was actually to be able to be in this anthology 
with David Farland because I, I, I had known him for several years. Um, he was, uh, took one of his courses, uh, very much enjoyed his Rune Lords novels, even though I have not read them all. Um, and I think that while that is much more on the epic fantasy than strictly military fantasy because it does deal with more of the politics and the culture and he he has such a rich world that he has developed in the in the rune lords books um he he is such a pro when it comes to uh presenting a story and and I just to be in an anthology with him was was a highlight of my my writing career. All right, and it's been a highlight of my podcast interview hosting career to talk to you three. Uh, we talked about Shattered Shields today. It's an anthology of brand new stories uh, out now from Bain. You should check it out. And uh, I just want to say thanks to our guests today, uh, Jennifer Brozick, Brian Thomas Schmidt. They're the co-editors of the anthology and Gray Reinhardt, who has got a story in it. Thanks so much for being here, guys. Thank you. Thank you. And now here is part 34 of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. It's read by Bronson Pinchot. This portion of Hard Magic is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Here's the setup for what's coming up. It's the 1930s in America, but it's an America that has been magically changed. In the 1860s, a handful of people from all walks of life were visited with special magical talents and each generation more are so affected. These people are called actives. Most actives use their powers for good, but some don't. Jake Sullivan is a private eye. He's also a former soldier, an ex-con, and an active heavy, the kind of active that controls the force of gravity. Jake has been recruited by a mysterious secret organization of actives dedicated to seeing humanity through a possible magical-based apocalypse. They're known as the Grimnorn Knights, if the Grimnor are to be believed, the evil forces of magic introduced into the world have reached a peak, and the apocalyptic finale for humanity may be about to begin. Here is Bronson Pinchot with part 34 of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. Browning had sent a servant to have Sullivan meet him alone in his workshop. It had only taken a moment of looking into the butler's vacant expression to realize he was a summoned, easily the most human-appearing one that he'd ever seen, but a summoned nonetheless. It made perfect sense considering the grimoire's apparent fixation on secrecy. The butler creature led him to a room filled with machinery and left him at the entrance. Sullivan paused to admire the racks of beautiful weapons. He ran his finger down a perfectly engraved Auto 5, then a polished over-under, then he stopped to gawk at what must have been an early prototype of the deadly Browning automatic rifle. He whistled. So, are you an enthusiast? Browning said, hunched over a workbench, a tiny part in one hand as he worked it over carefully with a round file. 
I grew up with one of your Winchester rifles, used it to put food on the table, an 1895 that my daddy brought back from Cuba. It even had the bayonet, but he never did let me use that on any deer. He chuckled. You could say that I'm a fair hand with a gun. Got mighty handy with a Lewis during the war. Browning did not look up from his work. Colonel Lewis designed a fine weapon. Sullivan wandered around the end of the rack to another filled with guns that he did not recognize. May I? Of course. Browning held up the part to the light and nodded in satisfaction. Sullivan picked up a short weapon and was surprised at its weight. At first he thought it was a BAR missing its stock, but rather the action was where the stock should be, enclosed in a housing so he could mount it to his shoulder like a proper stock. There was a pistol grip forward of the magazine. He realized that his face would rest on the leather pad on top of the receiver for a cheek weld. Interesting. It made the overall weapon about a foot shorter, but still with a barrel length sufficient to generate good velocity. No wasted space, but dang if you don't want to shoot that one left-handed, you'd eat brass. The English requested that. They called it a bullpup. Overall length is significantly shorter, plus it has improvements to the gas system and bolt. It is the bar model of 1929, but it was never submitted since I suffered a fatal heart attack. He hefted the stubby weapon. Lighter, no bipod. It would have been much nicer in the close confines of a trench than his massive Lewis gun, though not nearly as good for laying down sustained fire. It even fired the same powerful cartridge. It's weird, but I like it. This one has been personally worked over, including the addition of minor spells of durability and accuracy. Five hundred rounds a minute, feeding from twenty or thirty round box magazines. There is a case for it behind the counter. It has a Maxim silencer that can be attached to the muzzle much quieter, though it does get rather hot. I would like for you to have it. Sullivan paused. Really? Browning nodded as he took the metal part and slid it into a pistol frame followed by a pin to lock it in place. I know that you will be leaving us shortly. I've known Black Jack for many years, and he wasn't quite the cipher that he thought he was. I know that he had a special assignment for you, something so important that he did not dare tell any of his long-time associates. The least I can do is make sure you are as well-equipped as possible. Thank you, sir. He watched as Browning's hands flew about in a blur, quickly assembling a pistol. Browning may have been old, but he'd done this millions of times. He continued working as he spoke. I hail from a persecuted people, Mr. Sullivan. My family was driven from place to place. We would build a home only to be forced out by mobs and murderers. I've seen persecution firsthand. That's why I joined the society. I became a knight of the Grim Noir because no one should have to bear such cruel treatment. He worked the slide several times and checked the trigger, nodding in satisfaction. Excellent. Sullivan did not recognize the pistol. It looked like the old favored 1911 that he'd broken, only fatter and with a concealed hammer. Dozens of tiny designs had been hand-carved into the metal grips. I have lived 
a very long time. The last few years have been on borrowed time, thanks to magical healing. Yet, even in my old age, I have yet to see the end of violence against the innocent. I provide the weapons to prevent such things. Whatever task Black Jack gave you, Mr. Sullivan, please, do not let him down. Yes, sir, he answered as Browning passed the pistol over. He took it tenderly. It even felt like his old 1911, just thicker, which was more comfortable in his big hand. The sights were bigger and easier to see than he was used to. It felt like it had been made for him. The M1921, designed for army brutes, except the contract was cancelled. Based on my 1908, only with 14 rounds of 45 automatic in a staggered column magazine. It is the only one of its kind, so please do not lose it. There are 20 magazines in the box on that top shelf. I will provide ammunition as well as any supplies you need, including money. J. Edgar Hoover has been sent a telegram stating that the Army has requested your services at the American Battle Monuments Commission. Unfortunately, the Army will require you to be out of the country and unable to communicate for the foreseeable future. If anyone asks, you are detailed to the staff of one Colonel Eisenhower. Hoover will not like it, but the General had many friends. Do you still have his ring? He pulled it out of his shirt pocket. I do. I believe he would want you to keep it. You will need it as a full member of the Grim Noir Society. Should you accept, I will administer the oath to you before you leave. It will provide a small measure of magical protection. I thought that your bosses said no new members. Bureaucrats are the same in every endeavor, even magical ones. I do not know what your assignment is, but I will not have Black Jack's dying wish denied because of me. When will you be departing? Sullivan thought about it for a moment as he inspected the pistol. He needed to get to South Under as fast as possible, but he'd started on this quest for personal reasons, and he wasn't the type of man who left things unfinished. I've got one last thing to do. Lick Hill, California Maddie folded his arms and rested them across the roof of the automobile. The summer sun beat down on him. Across the fields of waving yellow grass and small hills sat the power plant. Beyond the smoking stacks was a ravine and then the largest hill in the area, the narrow steel strut tower that rose from the plant seemed somehow too tall. In a way, it was every bit as unnatural as he, an aberration in the laws of physics created from wild cog imaginings. What do you think? he asked the advance scout from the shadow guard contingent. The young woman removed her sunglasses and studied the tower's defenses. She did not need a telescope any more than he did revealing that she surely wore the kanji granting the vision of a hawk. They are complacent. Her assessment matched his own. He'd studied this location carefully when the chairman had commissioned the study of weak points in the American defenses. The fact that they were able to park so close was a testament to Americans' foolish pride. 
There were half a dozen other automobiles parked along the road here as well, mostly travelers stopping to gape at one of the legendary peace rays. Pathetic. Can you take it? Easily. Judging from the number of vehicles, traffic, and visible guards, I would say that they are understaffed. Even if they have any actives, we will take them by surprise, she stated. It was a well-known fact that the military had atrophied since the last war left the country in an isolationist stupor. After all, who could invade a country that had so many peace rays? It will take at least twenty minutes for reinforcements to arrive. Their lack of fear has made them soft. We'll have to remedy that, he muttered, glancing over at the shadow guard. The fact that she was female meant nothing. The shadow guard was made up of fades and travelers, perfect assassins. The chairman would never waste one, even if they were of the weaker sex, but he'd been surprised to find that she was as white as he was. She caught him looking and turned her eerie gray eyes on him. Her hair was dark red. She obviously knew what he was thinking. My parents were British missionaries in Burma when it fell. I was raised in an Imperium school. It was a great honor. As you are well aware, a Caucasian is able to do more among the Americans without arousing suspicion. She put the cheaters back on to hide her unnatural eyes. She was beautiful, and she knew it. Maddie was impressed with the way that her every unconscious move managed to display her perfect body just enough to keep his constant attention. The Shinobi Academy had taught her well. Seduction was a valuable tool of espionage. Even if she wasn't a traveler, he had no doubt that she would be an effective tool. What do they call you? For the purposes of this mission, my identity is Gladys Mays of Toledo, Ohio. In the academy, I took the name of Toshiko. She returned his gaze without fear. That was something else he would have to fix. Maddie had masters, and he had followers. He didn't have equals. He'd taken so many kanji onto his body that all physical sensations had become dull. He had taken to cutting himself with a razor just so he could feel. It was a rare occasion to find a woman that got his attention. Maddie decided he would take her for himself when this mission was complete. He'd see just what tricks the Academy had taught her, and he'd consider it his reward. Being an iron guard had its privileges. Brief your men, Toshiko, we strike tonight. Mar Pacifica, California Francis had watched Faye training for the last hour. She was learning at a frightening speed, and he found it nearly impossible to keep track of how fast she popped in and out of sight, appearing suddenly at totally unexpected directions and speeds. Lance was clearly befuddled, trying to keep up. Though he knew it was impossible, the girl didn't seem to be capable of running out of power. He had needed to do something to get his mind off his grief, and his first inclination had been to raid the liquor cabinet and drink himself incoherent on his family's finest vintages, but he knew that the general would have disapproved. Pershing had been like a father to him, far better than the man who'd spawned him. His father hadn't been a bad man per se, simply weak. He was a politician first, human being a distant second. He was the type who tested the wind— before stating an opinion, there were no truths, only the path that had the least economic repercussions. When he'd been appointed ambassador and had seen the Imperium's evil firsthand, 
Even that hadn't been enough to goad him into taking a stand. Francis, on the other hand, had left Japan haunted with nightmares from the things he had seen. He was a mover from a long line of movers, only he was far more talented than his forebears. To them, it was just a parlor trick, something that could become an embarrassment should it ever become public knowledge, and he had constantly been admonished to keep his power secret. General Pershing had seen his talent, recognized his potential, and had shown him how he could use it to make things right. Pershing had taught him how to be a man. He owed him his life, except now he was gone. Francis jumped as Heinrich appeared on the bench beside him. The fade always managed to move with unnerving silence. Sorry, he said calmly. I did not intend to startle you. Well, you didn't, Francis sputtered. I heard you coming, he lied. Heinrich was quiet as he watched Faye disappear just as Lance tried to hit her with a padded stick, only to reappear ten feet in the air over his head. She's too talented to just be some poor country girl. I do not trust her. You're incapable of trust, Francis muttered, then regretted it. I've earned that right, Heinrich said softly. Where I come from, trust is an honor given to very few. Francis was once heir to the world's greatest blimp magnet. Who was he to judge someone who'd grown up as a homeless urchin inside the walls of Dead City? Francis had never been inside the ruins of what had once been Berlin, but he'd heard the legends. The smoking blight left by the firing of the peace ray had ended the Great War, but had burned the land and poisoned the air. Then it was made hell on earth as the Kaiser's undead soldiers had been rounded up and walled inside. He couldn't even begin to imagine what it had been like to be one of the humans trapped inside, especially as a child. I'm sorry, that's not what I meant. Heinrich continued as if he hadn't heard Francis's apology, which was probably for the best. All the Grimoire knew that behind his friendly demeanor, Heinrich was a pained man. This girl, she is not as dumb as she pretends to be. He couldn't disagree with that assessment. Faye was smart, just not in a normal way. She shows up and immediately kills the prisoner just as he is starting to talk. That doesn't strike you as odd? He didn't wait for a response. Then soon after we lose the general. We all knew it was coming soon. Maybe that was why he didn't feel as sad as he thought he should have. Part of him was relieved that the suffering was done, and that made him feel even guiltier. That big heavy was in there when he died, not Faye. The very thought gnawed at Francis. He'd known the general since he'd been a little boy, had become a knight under his tutelage, had forsaken his family to serve under his command, and given him a home during his final years, and yet it had been a complete stranger who had been there at the end. He's Maddie's brother, but I don't see you getting all suspicious of him. I don't trust him either. I barely trust you and we worked together for years. Heinrich's smile was apologetic. I'm very sorry about your nose, he said. I shouldn't have struck you. Francis sniffed. Jane had fixed it, but it still hurt. She's not a shadow guard. You know, Black Jack said so. It didn't seem right to invoke the general's name to win an argument, but he had, and Francis was going to be damned if his suspicious friend was going to cast doubts on anything that Blackjack had said from his deathbed. So lay off her. 
Heinrich looked at him, raising his eyebrows. Francis Stifelsent. Mein Gott, have you taken a liking to that gray-eyed lunatic? That's... that's absurd. Go to hell, Koenig, Francis said as he rose from the bench. He wasn't in the mood. I'm going to go and get completely drunk. I'm sorry, Jane, Daniel Garrett said as his fiancée cried. You did everything you could. Nobody blames you. Jane blew her nose and wiped her bloodshot eyes. It's my fault, Dan. I should have been able to save him. She pulled her knees up to her chest and rocked back and forth. Why? Why couldn't I be strong enough? Her pain was killing him inside. Dan put his arm over her shoulder, pulled her close, cursing his own inadequacies. He knew that all he had to do was reach for his power, just a little push, the tiniest of pushes. He could tell the woman he loved that it wasn't her fault, that she'd done everything she could, that no healer could stop a pale horse, and with his power to influence minds, she would believe whatever words came out of his mouth. Even if it was the truth, it would also be wrong, so he didn't do it. I love you, Jane, he said softly. He was careful not to even touch his power as he spoke. He had no right. It wasn't your fault. You did the best you could. You're not trying to influence me, are you? She asked, almost but not quite, laughing through the tears. Of course not, he answered as he brushed some stray hairs away from her eyes. You already know how much crap I get for being a mouth getting married to a babe like you. Everyone in the world thinks the only way somebody like you would end up with an ugly mug like me is because I've got you hypnotized. He said it as a joke to cheer her up, but they both knew it was partially true, and it hurt him every single time. He smiled. It sure isn't because I'm rich. Jane hugged him close, her fingernails digging into the back of his neck. Then you can see everyone's insides all the time. They're all ugly and squishy. They both had a laugh. Then Jane began weeping again, and Dan did all that he thought an honorable husband to be should do, and gave her his shoulder to cry on. Finally she spoke. I can't bear it. It's just too much hurt. I can fix physical hurt, but I can't do anything about this kind. I need to be strong. The others need me. Dan, I want you to tell me I did my best. I need to believe it. He nodded and pushed his power hard. It wasn't your fault. His words resonated like biblical truth. Thank you. Sullivan found Delilah standing at the edge of the ocean, staring out toward the setting sun. Her dress was whipping around her in the wind, and he could see her figure as the sun shone through the fabric. You're a tough one, Devine, he said. Who said I wanted to be found, she said without turning around. Sullivan paused, all the practiced words failing him once again. They always worked in his head, but turned to garbage when he tried to form them in his mouth. Instead, he just said, I came to say I'm sorry. For trying to arrest me? For bouncing me off a roof? For being ready to shoot me down for the coppers because you just took their word that I was a mad dog killer? Or before that? For when you ran away and left me alone in New Orleans, maybe even for just being a lousy jerk? Yes. 
She finally turned around, placed her hands on her hips, and gave him that same dangerous smirk. You're leaving me again, aren't you? She was so pretty that it struck his heart like a bullet. There's something I got to do. Take me with you. It'll be too dangerous. I'm a brute, remember? Sullivan didn't respond. He didn't know what to say. She had the power to pull a man's head off with her bare hands and anything short of a high-powered rifle would bounce off her skin. She was tough as nails and worth ten men in a fight. But she'd always be that same scared girl that he'd found abused and mistreated in Louisiana. He'd put her back together while she'd helped him heal from the nightmare of the war, a pair of survivors who'd started to cobble together a life. But then he'd gone away, prison had changed him, leaving him hard and uncaring, and it had been easy to believe that she'd become just as jaded while they'd been apart. But he'd been wrong. And here she was, the same girl, only with a harder shell, and she deserved so much better than a lug like him who had already proven he couldn't protect her. There was no way he could live with her death on his hands. That was one thing that he wasn't strong enough for. He just wasn't eloquent enough to explain all that. You're doing this for Pershing? I know what it is, you know. It's the same reason he brought me here, only once he read me. I think he decided I wasn't good enough. But by then he was stuck with me. She turned back to the Pacific. Story of my life. Damaged goods. Nobody wants me. Without hesitation... He moved forward and encircled her in his arms, crushing her tight against him, suddenly afraid to let her go. He whispered low in her ear, I do. They were two irreparably flawed people. Together they almost made a whole person, and he figured that might just be enough. She leaned her head back into his chest, and he held her there for a long time. That was part 34 of the complete audiobook serialization of Hard Magic by Larry Correa, read by Bronson Pinchot. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a rousing round of Renaissance revelry, along with the raising and quaffing of multiple mugs of mead, made from the nectar of a new breed of killer monarch butterflies recently discovered and cataloged, by a team of brave and possibly very foolish lepidopterists, for host David F. Sherrad and editors Jennifer Brozek and Brian Thomas Schmidt, as well as author Gray Reinhardt. All part of the most excellent military fantasy anthology now out, Shattered Shields. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. <laughs>